didn't know how to start this morning, whether to, to, to see if you're all switched on to give you a little bit of a brain tease. I don't know. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. If you don't get this, by the way, this has got nearly nothing to do with what I'm going to be talking about. It is purely just to make sure you're all switched on, okay? Um, let me ask you a, a, a question. Is it the case that we know what we see, or is it actually the case we see what we know? Let's put your hands up. If you think we, we know what we see, put your hands up. Let's have a, let's have a think. Oh, interesting. And so, put your hands up if you think we see what we know. So I'm not sure. <laughs> so, a lot of heads like, I'm not. <laughs> the brain tease has worked. <laughs> why, why is it that we see what we know and not know what we see? Go on, Lisa, what are you going to say? Say it again. Yeah. Let me give you, perhaps for those who are shaking your heads and are a bit discombobbled. Um, let me uh, perhaps give an illustration. Dave, can you come up for me? Most of you know this is Dave, right? Um, a lot of you have known Dave for a while. Uh, yes. What are, what are some of the things that we know about Dave? No hair. He's got no hair. <laughs> <laughs> what, else? what else do we know about Dave? He's got, He's got a great sense of humor. She's got a beautiful watch. True that. <laughs> oh, she's not in the room. She's not in the room. We'll repeat that yeah. when Laura comes yeah. back in. The show. You can tell her I said that. Story, <laughs> yeah. Brownie points. Anything else? Gift of encouragement. This is backfired. This is going to make your head this big, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, go on, Jim. Any sports scientists or trainers? Yes. Oh. I did. Do we have photos of this? I'm still looking. Yeah, you're still looking yeah. for it. So in the case of Dave, I guess usually, although no one put their hands up, which is really interesting, usually we think, there's Dave, I know Dave, I see Dave, I know what I see. But actually, what you've done, I think, is, is correct. We actually see Dave, and we know certain things. Laura, you'll be pleased to know that when we asked um, what people know about Dave, um, the, the third response was that he has a beautiful wife. <laughs> and he agreed, yeah, yeah, that's right. But, but the case is actually a little bit more complex when it comes to us knowing things. It's that we see Dave and we know certain things about him. And doing it that way around is actually really helpful in all our knowing. Because if we operate on the... Cheers, Dave. If we operate on the assumption that we always know what we see, for example, that blocks out or that's a certain posture that can actually stop us from learning. If we operate on the other way around, we see what we know, that means there's always a possibility that our seeing can be expanded and enriched. The more we're informed, we get to see a bigger picture of something. You, you think about these um, puzzles, the 3D puzzles sometimes that you look at. Some people look at them, cannot see the 3D picture, right? They see what they know, which is a 2D picture. But someone who can see the 3D sees more. Yeah? You don't always know what you see. You always see what you know. It's got nothing really to do with, uh, <laughs> with what we're going to talk about. It's just fun. It's just fun, it's fun to think about. It does actually operate, though, if you think about Scripture, for example. So when we actually think about what we're doing right now, having that posture towards Scripture is a humbling thing. We don't open Scripture and we say, all right, John 3, 16. I know what I see. I know it. I just know it. But if you say, I see what I know, the more you meditate on John 3.16, the more you meditate on Scripture, the more you come to it with that way round, it actually says God is God, and he is always in the position to reveal more to me so I can see more. Yeah? So it does, it does work. And that's good for us, actually, as we come now. Are we anticipating to know more? Or do we come to the Bible and say, actually, my Bible knowledge is pretty good. I've got it... I know all my doctrine well. I can switch off now for the next half an hour. Do we come anticipating to hear God speak to us? Because church, he is here. God is living and active and he is here and he yearns for you to come and to listen. Yeah? 
a, uh, a verse as I was preparing this um, that, that I just loved. I just got really giddy about. It's not even in the, the passage that we're going to be doing, but it was in the passage that we thought about last week. Okay? So in Acts 9, if everyone wants to turn to Acts 9, we're going to be in Acts 9 anyway. Um, but the verse that just really encouraged me, perhaps to, to set this all in context, is verse 31. Okay? So 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Walking in the fear of the Lord. What's that word fear mean? Biblically, Well, what it has a lot to do with, again, is our fundamental position towards God. It's an awe. It's not necessarily a, ah, I'm legging it, although I think that's probably a proper response. Um, and there have certainly been people in history that have viewed God and had a, a, an image of God and then just have not been able to cope with it. But it's to do with a fundamental awe that we have, the one who we revere. Church, do we want to be people who fear God? If we read that description, could we place that description and put it on Freedom Church? That we walk in the fear, in the awe. Who do we revere? It's quite a question, isn't it? It's just something to think about as we get into the passage. I want to... uh, Today we're actually going to be looking at uh, nine... 32, so the one after, and we're going to go to 43. But before I go and read that to us, I'm going to use a prayer that's been used for 1,500 years um, and has been prayed for 1,500 years before coming to God's word. So let me pray. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. If you want to follow along as I read, it's Acts 9. It's Acts 9, verses 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity, In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived... They took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down, and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. 
And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So we have for the last couple of weeks focused on one of the most important moments, you could say, in the history of Christianity. It's the conversion of Saul. Somebody who sought to kill those who followed and proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. The one who condoned and watched on with his eyes, Stephen getting martyred. Only to have his eyesight temporarily taken away from him. To make him see how blind he had actually been. We've also seen how after having his sight restored, Saul began to proclaim with the others that Christ is Lord. And he risked his life to do it. In the um, section just before we read earlier, just before 31, we see that actually people had tried now to kill Saul. His life was on the line. And it is a true but bizarre fact that Acts and history from then on presents the mission of God advancing and flourishing in the midst of persecution. Last week we were reminded that the cost was not only high for those who preached Christ then, but it is also to us now. Believers will be always subject to persecution from the surrounding cultures that we're in. Our risk is the same. Proclaiming Christ as Lord, living for him, being thankful to him in all things. And seeking others to persuade, to turn to him, will stir curiosity in some. But it will stir anger in others. There is no doubt that when we preach Christ as Lord to some, we will feel deep communion and fellowship with those who turn. And it is also likely that we will get rejected. We will also feel the alienation that comes from that act, from those who continue to walk a darker path. But today's passage, I think, for us is here to encourage us believers in this task. Okay? It's there to equip us with joy. So what I wanted to do this morning is to take the words which Peter says to Aeneas and to Tabitha and use what he says to them as a key to understanding, first, what the passage is talking about. Okay? Uh, to use the text, uh, to use the words that Peter says um, to understand what is sometimes called just the plain meaning of the text. What's the text plainly teaching? Okay? So I want to do that first. But secondly, I want to use those same words to then go a little bit deeper and actually get us to see that the words that Peter uses go right to the heart of who God is and how he works in the world. Okay? There are the two ways we're going this morning. So, firstly, how do the words make sense of the plain meaning of the text? Last time we saw Peter in Acts, in chapter 5, he was standing before a council and was asked to stop preaching and proclaiming Christ as Lord. He was being asked to be silent, to stop publicly living for Jesus. However, Peter humbly replied no. And he and the apostles with him, once they were released, I love this, were told, were told in the passage that they were glad to suffer for the name of Christ. That's a beautiful description. Weird, but beautiful at the same time. Is that one church that could fit us? You remember that last time that you were feeling happy and glad? That feeling that you get. You just want it to kind of stay, don't you? They had that because they got the chance to suffer for the name of Jesus. Does that fit us? In our passage, Peter is being introduced back into the narrative, into the story, 
And we see that he's traveling around, and he ends up in two places, okay? So we've got Lydda and we've got Joppa. In Lydda, he meets Aeneas, who is introduced to us as being a man. Um, in contrast, we have Tabitha in Joppa, and she's introduced to us as a disciple. Now, I don't usually do Greek in sermons, but I do when it's, um, it's essential and is necessary and is actually good for us uh, to take note of. It's the only time in the New Testament where a woman is called a wholehearted disciple. In the Greek, it's the only time where the feminine is used of methetes, which is follower or disciple. Okay? And the reason why I bring that up is because Luke's using that word for Tabitha for a reason. And the reason is probably because he's trying to impress upon the readers the fact that she's truly and wholly a disciple of the Lord. There's no question about it. She's fully committed. I imagine the equivalent today is the person who knows that following Jesus isn't a religious decision that affects a personal belief, but rather is an all-encompassing claim on the whole person in the whole reality. Tabitha is not one to sideline the faith. She knows it has public consequences. She's holy for the Lord. She is a methetes. As for Aeneas, in contrast then, he's being introduced to us as a man. So he's probably not meant to be seen as a disciple. He's probably a resident in Lydda that Peter finds. However, did you notice the context of both Aeneas and did you notice the context of Tabitha? Aeneas is described as being paralyzed for eight years. A condition which would have meant that he was unable to do basic tasks, and in the culture at the time, probably left just to see people pass by him. The loneliness that that must give somebody. Interestingly, the... Um, the more homeless I uh, encounter on some of the streets, one of the number one things they say uh, is the hardest thing to deal with is the loneliness that they feel when they watch people just go past and past and past. He would have relied upon somebody, Aeneas would have relied upon somebody. Um, he probably would have sat on a pallet of some sort in the day. He would have relied upon somebody to pick him up, to put him on a bed, and then to repeat the process in, in the morning. Then we get Tabitha. Okay, so how's Tabitha described? Verse 36. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Luke, it seems, has crafted the description of Tabitha purposely to enable us to feel the horror of what goes on. Okay. He reminds the reader that Tabitha was also called Dorcas, okay, which means gazelle. In other words, her life was, it was beautiful to see. Okay. That's, he wants to impress that upon the reader. Uh, she dazzled might be a, a good way of, of phrasing it. Not only this, but she was full, Luke says, of good works and charity. By all accounts, Tabitha is flourishing in life. Okay? Tabitha is flourishing You've got people over the, uh, later on crying and mourning because she's made all these wonderful things for the widows, okay? and they, they just can't believe what's going on. The narrative is crafted to give us the shock because in verse 37, this flourishing lady falls ill and dies, just like that. It's important not to pass over the suffering which, which these people experience in the text. Okay? These encounters that Peter is having remind us that our world is one which suffers. It's one which suffers. I've suffered. You all have suffered. And we are all probably, to some degree, still suffering. Our world is a place where not only paralysis and illness are common, but also persecution, deep and traumatic emotional, physical, and psychological agonies. They are real. 
And I know this is obvious. I know this is self-evident. But it is the case, and we must not pass over this, that Christianity is intensely realistic. It doesn't seek to avoid or escape the reality of suffering, okay? It doesn't render it meaningless like atheism does, okay? It doesn't do that. Rather, it acknowledges it as a real problem. It's a real problem. And this, this background of suffering highlights and brings us to the surface of Luke's main point in our text. But before we get there, just quickly, I want us to just think about why it's so important to acknowledge the obvious, to acknowledge the fact that we all suffer and the world is suffering. Firstly, as believers, we need to just readjust again and realize that when somebody goes from non-believer to believer, that does not end suffering. It will not end suffering. Okay? It's universally experienced and will be by all humanity. Okay? So you can think about the man born blind in John 9, if you know that passage. Okay? It's a man. If you don't, there's a man who's born blind. Jesus and the disciples come up to him and they say, Oh, uh, Lord, uh, which, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus says, None. Neither. He was born blind. He was born in, he suffered. It just is. You can think about the tower um, of Siloam, and Jesus talks about this, and it kills 18 people. And he specifically tells his disciples that the people that died, those 18 people, they weren't any worse than any others. It was a horror that happened in the world. He acknowledged the reality. But suffering occurred. Being a believer, as we've heard over the last couple of weeks in the early church, doesn't bring immunity to suffering either. Hurt and pain, in fact, always follows disciples of Christ to some degree. Uh, some of you will know this. Um, let's think about Paul in 2 Corinthians. Okay? 2 Corinthians 11, Paul rattles off a list of stuff that's happened. Just, just listen to, to this. Five times he received the 40 lashes less one. Three times he was beaten by rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was adrift at sea for a night and a day. And the list actually goes on. Tabitha in our passage is held up and described as a model disciple. And when she's running the race well, she suffers. She gets ill and she dies. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we need to be extremely watchful. Okay, For there are some... Who will themselves call themselves Christians but proclaim that if one gives more financially, has just a little bit more faith, prays more, obeys more, then suffering will disappear. It is wrong. It is wrong. It's called the prosperity gospel. And it causes further pain and it causes further anger because when the non-believer becomes a believer under the false pretense that suffering will end and it doesn't, causes havoc and as believers we need to remember this simple truth of the reality of suffering because that thought can actually get into our heads how many times do we think life's not going well but I know my focus isn't God okay what I need to do is I need to do this I need to do that I need to do this and my circumstances will get better that's a form of it that is a form of the prosperity gospel A second point from this, before we get to Luke's purpose of the text, is that the reality of suffering reminds us to be watchful in a way as to not interpret suffering in the world in an unbiblical way. Okay? The, historically and currently, the most human response to suffering is why. Okay, that's always the question that, brings, that the suffering brings us to. Why? Okay? Um, why am I suffering? Why is my loved one suffering? And we need to know that that specific question will often go unanswered. Okay? The text just presents us here with the reality of suffering. Okay? 
It, it just assumes it as daily life. But importantly, a lack of an answer to the why question does not give us warrant to conclude that Christianity does not speak well into suffering. Okay, it does. There are a whole wealth of biblical material okay, that speak onto, into this discussion. This text, however, just lays it plain as the reality in which we're going to live. But importantly, the experience of suffering, we need to be careful, does not give us warrant to conclude that Christianity does not speak well into it. That it does not sufficiently address the problem. However, that why question will probably go unanswered. Okay. Job is the perfect example of this. For those of you who don't know, Job is born as described with the perfect conditions in life. Uh, he has his wife, he has his kids, he has multiple blessings, he's financially well off. Life is pictured as kind of like the model that everyone wants. And then everything gets taken away from him, apart from his wife. His wife, though, in the mess, turns to Job and says, curse God and die. She's struggling with it, no doubt. Um, the whole book of Job, and it's a long book, is Job wrestling with the experience of suffering, of real hurt and real pain. Now, the readers get chapter one. We, we get what's gone on behind the scenes. We get the why. Job doesn't. Okay? The whole book, and right at the end, his, the, the, uh, the answer God gives him, is not the answer to the why. He doesn't give the information that the reader gets in chapter one. He gets God. And in the picture of God, in the meeting with God, he says, I have spoken unwisely. I thought I knew, but I didn't know. Job doesn't get the answer that he seeks at the start, but he does get the answer We do well to listen to uh, the fathers who have gone before us, the Christians who have lived before us. Uh, this is John Chrysostom. Uh, he's an early church father. And he says this, If, therefore, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God is limitless, if his judgments are unsearchable, if his ways are past finding out, if his gift is unspeakable, and if his peace surpasses all understanding, not only mine and yours and anyone else's, and not only Paul's and Peter's, but even that of the archangels themselves and the powers on high, then tell me, what sort of excuse will you have? What forgiveness, having submitted yourself to such madness and folly, wishing to comprehend that which is unsearchable and demanding a reckoning regarding all the providence of God? That's his perspective on it. There seems to be, for him, an incomprehensibility to that question. And it's important then, with the reality of suffering, with that why question in mind, that there could be reasons, and there no doubt are reasons. Yet God does not have to give us that why. Perhaps the space is there so that we exercise trust. Now I said the Bible speaks on suffering in multiple ways, and this is not primarily about suffering. What's the main point in our text? The suffering that we've just been focusing on and highlighting um, is the truth and the backdrop which lies behind and undergirds this whole text, and it actually brings to sharper focus what Luke is trying to communicate to us, okay? And it's the truth that we were just talking about. Aeneas, Peter says, Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And to Tabitha, after she died, Tabitha, arise. Peter's proclamations to Aeneas and to Tabitha only make sense and touches the human heart only well if we have first focused on that, the reality of suffering, okay, beforehand. Luke, throughout his gospel, and here now in Acts, wants his readers to comprehend and believe the sure fact that God intervenes in human history. 
Yes, the gospel will flourish in persecution, but it is also accompanied by healing. We cannot brush aside, as some have tried to do, the miraculous nature of the events in the text. Peter speaks, the healing is done. Words are uttered, and those receiving them are wholly changed forever. In 1 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says that healing is a gift given to some by God for the building up of the church. And further, Paul states at the beginning of 1 Corinthians that the gifts are spirit-given and for the church whilst we await for the coming of Jesus. These miraculous events push us, the readers, to cast our eyes, often in the midst and reality of pain, to the one who is able to heal, to the one who breaks through, even raise the dead. He can break in and heal emotional well-being when it's been fractured. He can heal physical problems. He heals broken relationships and he can heal desperate situations. It isn't only Saul who has in a moment had their lives transformed by grace. In fact, every time a person decides to follow Jesus, we see a miraculous intervention into a desperate situation and we see healing. Dry bones have come to life in that moment. What was dead is now alive. Now, I've known instant inner healing in uh, my life, once or twice, moments where God has instantly and decisively taken away something that has tormented me, just like that. Now, it's true that in day-to-day life in our culture, God does not usually physically raise somebody from the dead, although I have heard of it happening. But we must not rule out God working in such a way if he wants to, and scripture never prohibits us to pray for such an event. But we need to consider, and this is important, church, that God's miraculous activity will look different according to the purpose of the healings and the context in which they are performed. This is because God is God. And he knows when to intervene instantaneously and miraculously like he is here. In our text, Luke emphasizes this point by showing us that Peter doesn't say, in the name of Jesus, you are healed. And whereas people earlier on in Acts were seeking to just be touched by Peter's shadow so they could be healed, it's different here. Both the proclamations have an authority behind them which we can recognize as not belonging to Peter. Luke wants us not to see Peter so much as he wants us to see the source of the healing. Christ heals you, Aeneas. Not Peter heals you, Aeneas. Christ heals you. It's not Peter who has the authority here to heal, but it is Christ It's not Peter's whim which succeeds in healing a paralytic and raising Tabitha from the dead. It's the action of God through him which does it. God heals, humans do not. It is not by method. It is not by correct wording. It's not only done by those of a significant amount of faith or those who have a certain amount of money. It is God who heals. It is God who breaks through in the way in which he sees fit in the context of the time. I'll give you a a brief illustration of this. Um, I know uh, an evangelist, I did some work with an evangelist down in Peterborough, and he, uh, (laughs) I love it when he tells me this this story, but we, we did some ministry in a pub. Okay, um, a Weatherspoons on a uh, Friday morning in about 9 a.m. is surprisingly full. And um, it was a shock to me, honestly. I was like, I know. it was at 9, nine or 10. And um, we were doing some ministry in a, in a pub. And Chris, um, the evangelist, sees a guy with a glass of wine and he's got his hand in a, uh, in a cast. And um, he, he says to me, the only reason why he went up to him, because he thought it was weird with the glass of wine and the, the cast. He just thought, oh, that's odd. I'm going to go and talk to him. And he went up and he asked, oh, what's wrong with your hand? 
And the guy says, uh, I've crushed it. Something fell on it, I crushed it. And uh, the bones are all mangled and I can't move it and it's going to take ages to heal. And Chris, uh, feeling nervous, uh, as he would himself admit in these times, was like, what can I pray for God to heal your hand? So Chris said a very simple prayer. Just a very simple prayer. Um, and then says to the guy, how does it feel? And the guy went, I shouldn't be able to do that. And um, it freaked the guy out. And it freaked Chris out. Okay? <laughs> like, Chris was like, what? It's actually like... <laughs> yeah. And um, so the, the, uh, the man goes back, it turns out, that week. He wasn't supposed to be in Peterborough at the time. Um, but he went back to the doctors sooner than he was supposed to. He says, look, I can do this with my hand. He has an x-ray. And um, the crushed bones are no longer crushed. Okay? Uh, I've met this guy in the pub, and he's relaying it to me. And, um, yeah, he could use his hand. The doctors said, we have no idea how this has happened, but it has. We have no medical knowledge to say how your hand has gone from crushed to you can do this and the bones aren't crushed. Okay? And, and, but the healing um, prepared the way for him to receive the gospel. Okay, so Chris was able to give him a gospel, he said, read it. And, it, and it opened the door to chats with this man about the reality of God, okay? And so God purposely inter, intervened in a way which was for a certain purpose. It was for that man to open his heart to Christ, And the purpose of the healing in that man's life and the one in the passage is the same. Did you notice the outcome of the healings in the passage? The miraculous healings in the text have a miraculous effect on those around them. Okay, Uh, So God uses the direct healing of Aeneas and Tabitha in order to bring a large amount of people to him. The healings were for purpose. Beyond what Peter knew, beyond what the people in the initial healings saw happening, God had other things in mind for this. Yes, the healings are glorious, and the people are thankful for them, but they also had a greater purpose, unbeknownst at the time. Luke says, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord. Clearly, a large enough group of people to warrant such extravagant language. He could be... It could be all, or it could be so many that we might as well write all. Either way, God's purpose of drawing people to him at this moment was affected through healing. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do not forget who God is. That his heart is for healing and redeeming bleak situations. We should confidently pray to God for healing Further, we are to be the bearers and vessels of healing to others often. And Luke, I think, wants to impress this on us, on, on us, the readers, in a particular way. Let me ask you, do the accounts sound familiar to you that we read? Do they sound at all familiar? Are the accounts not very closely echoing the ministry of Jesus? Of the healing of the paralytic in Mark 2, get up, you are healed, take your mat and go. Aeneas is told to do very similar here. And when Jesus heals Jairus' daughter, he goes in and he says, little girl, arise, Talitha Chumai. Here, if Peter is in speaking Aramaic, he will literally say to Tabitha, Tabitha Chumai. One letter difference. Talitha and Tabitha. One letter difference. This is a common way in the early church and in narratives to impress upon the readers that we are supposed to walk in the same steps. Peter is being demonstrated as walking in the same steps as Jesus. And the readers, therefore, are being called to follow suit. We need to be walking in the steps of Peter. We need to be walking in the steps of Jesus. He is clearly being portrayed by Luke as walking in the steps of Jesus. So we should look for those in society who are hurting, 
who are crying out for help and confidently pray to the God who heals because he breaks in. Here in Acts, miraculous healings are witnessed and seen alongside the proclamation of the good news of Jesus in word and deed. We should anticipate the same. We need to be careful as believers that we do not preach that God is all good and knowing, but live as if he is bad and asleep. We need to take seriously the biblical truth that God intervenes and wholly heals. Now, the words yes and not yet perhaps help us figure something else out, which gets us to the deeper sense of the text, okay? The first sense, the plain meaning of the text is that God, on his mission, breaks into the fallen world and often heals miraculously and instantaneously, okay? with purpose and providence, and that we are to follow suit. That's the plain meaning of the text. The second sense, however, acknowledges something that I imagine you've had in your minds all along. Namely, that God often does not heal instantly, and often does not heal miraculously in the sense that we've seen. Yes, miraculous and instant conversions are happening all over the world, but often the prayers, especially for some physical and emotional healing, is not or has not been yet answered with a yes. Pain continues. Hurt is felt. Bitterness can continue to increase. Suffering remains a reality. And brokenness goes on from one degree to another, with the answer for healing appearing to often be no. I want to suggest to you this morning that in the question of healing, it's never a no with God. Okay? I want to suggest to you that it's never a no in healing with God. If it's not a yes, which sees the healing come there or then or shortly after, it is a not yet. Okay? It's a not yet. See, people often think that if you believe that God can heal miraculously and instantaneously, then your vision of God is big. Okay? That's often the the picture. Wow, some people say, I envy that faith. Others might see it and simply conclude that you're misguided. But... Both of those reactions are actually the ones which are misguided and actually decrease who God is. What scripture calls us to see is the far larger picture of God's healing heart. Okay? And this is the second sense that these words get us to. We are called continually to shape our vision of who God is and what he is doing by how he has revealed himself, not by our own inventions. When Peter says to Aeneas, Christ heals you, he encapsulates God's heart and activity in the world. It is, in fact, the gospel. We could change the recipient to any person who earnestly seeks Jesus and trusts in him. In fact, we can say creation, Christ heals you. Because, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God in Christ was making whole that which was fractured and broken. He was, and he is, healing. The deeper message that this passage speaks of is that God is always healing creation. And he's always healing those who receive him. It's a constant action of God because he is love. And it is possible to join in this healing or to turn from it. But as those who turn to him for the first time find the penalty of sin wiped clean and are healed in that respect, believers who each day seek the Lord and pursue him are in that process always healed. Church, the fact that God does not always heal miraculously and instantaneously should not lead us to the faulty conclusion that he is not healing. Far from it. He works in the everyday actions, in the everyday choices that we and others make. 
He does this in a way which maintains our freedom but guarantees his intention. It's a paradox to get you thinking about over lunch. And he does it even through suffering. Now bear with me here. If we don't think this, then I think we've come away from a message that is prominent all through Scripture. How does this work? Church, there was a moment in history when all looked lost. There was a moment in history where darkness covered the land. There was a moment when suffering beyond all imagination was endured. Scourging, beatings were poured out upon Jesus and he was crucified and he died. In that moment of utter suffering, God was not only revealing himself, but he was enacting the healing and reconciliation of all things. The cross is the ultimate reason why we know that God is good. And the cross is the ultimate sign of him breaking into the world for the healing of the world. The cross and resurrection events are the ultimate reason why the presence of suffering does not mean that God is not healing. Because here, God healed through them. In the midst of suffering, because of suffering, healing came. Beloved, turning to Christ is the start of a whole healing. He doesn't just heal instantly, but he rather takes time usually. He leads us gently to pools of refreshment and healing. The vision of God, this vision of God is larger than the vision of God which only asks him to do instantaneous and miraculous healings. It is larger. It's acknowledging the fact that he can subvert an evil intention and make it good in the end. And it's the only reason why we, with Paul, can exclaim, if God is for us, then who can be against us? It's the ultimate reason why that rings true. Because that which would seek to cause us harm and that which would seek to do us damage is with God always ending in an ultimate healing. He's poured out his spirit into each one of us to revive us, to renew us. And he heals the power of sin. He's in the business of redeeming broken thinking. Reconciling friendships in the everyday, redeeming fractured marriages, bringing peace and love and joy and all fruit of the Spirit into the lives of those who follow him so that we flourish. He's the source of all the goodness, all the service, all the loving. As a church community, we are to embody this healing that is tangibly demonstrated to those people God has surrounded us with. And this means that we need to firstly acknowledge and praise God that he is always healing, okay? Secondly, it means that we need to be honest with one another. This is us, church. We need to be honest with one another about those areas where we're hurting, okay? And then we also need to open ourselves up to be used by the Spirit of God for the healing of others. God is always healing. We don't always know what we see when we look around and we see suffering. We see what we know. And the cross is how we evaluate what we see. It's the ultimate knowing. It's the ultimate point where we interpret the world, God, us, and what's coming. In the end, brothers and sisters, our body... Our bodies are going to die. None of us avoid that fate. We will suffer in the future. But beloved, when we lie in death, when we lie in death like Tabitha lied in death, Jesus, instead of Peter, will draw near to our ears and he will whisper, 
arise. Arise. An ultimate healing will have come. And, like Peter, leads Tabitha by the hand and presents her to those who are mourning. Jesus will lead his bride to those in the heavenlies. And they will look on and see a healed, perfect, spotless, beautiful bride. Healing is coming. Healing is coming. It has come. It is happening. And it will come. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this group of people. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you, Lord, for your redemption in Christ to save the world. Father, thank you that you took suffering and you took sin so seriously that you wanted to heal. You couldn't just let it go. You came for us in the Lord Jesus. And you started that redeeming work. Lord, thank you. Give us eyes to see that healing, Lord, when we struggle to. When we look on on suffering, we draw wrong conclusions. Lord, help us in those moments to see bigger, to see you at work when it's not obvious. And the ultimate guarantee of that was that it was not obvious that healing was happening in the moment of suffering on Jesus and the cross, and yet the resurrection happened. Lord, you subverted evil, and healing came. Lord, we long for healing. We long for healing today. Heal us in those areas where we need it today. May we turn to you Acknowledging sin, acknowledging hurt, acknowledging pain, lowering our pride and coming to you, pleading for our healing. And Lord, thank you that you are there. Thank you that those who seek, find. Amen.